We are focusing today on the story of John the Baptist, the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. I'm reading to you the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God. You who are our rock, you who save us, amen. In the second Sunday of Advent, when we are focusing on John the Baptist, there are themes that come up in our hearts and souls and intertwine. They are themes of the wilderness and of repentance and of our desire for a straight highway, God's desire to make a way through places where before you couldn't get through. These are themes that speak to our souls, to issues of our day-to-day lives. When I think about that desire for a straight highway, I think about how hard it was for many months this year to get from my parsonage to my mom's place at Wesley Willows. Uh, Many of you will nod your heads and agree you've had that you've done the same drive. I live in a very nice parsonage, about four minutes away, perfect commute, and uh, my mom lives up on North Rockton at Wesley Willows, and I would try these different routes trying to figure out how to get from my place to Wesley Willow. So the obvious way is to go up to Spring Creek, do Spring Creek across, figure out one of the roads to take north. Except, as you know, for many months, Spring Creek was torn up between Alpine and North Second, and it was a nightmare going through there, and so you wanted to avoid that. So then you would do something really smart, like, ooh, we'll take the high crest cut through. So I'd come down here around Gray's IGA, and I would go the high crest way. But then for many weeks, you would get down to the bottom of that intersection, and you know what happened. It was down to one lane, and it would take five or six stoplights to get through. <laughs> the Englishes are nodding. You've had that experience. You've just, you'd get down there, and then you couldn't get through. So I would think, I'm going to be really smart. I'm going to take Alpine up, just completely miss Spring Creek, take Alpine up. But of course, the bridge just east of North Second was out on Riverside. So then, instead of veering with Riverside, I would go straight on the road that takes you past St. Bridget's Catholic Church. And I got to tell, could you have more stop signs in there? (laughs) So... I'm this person who's always running a little bit late, and then with all of these travel issues, I was 
always late. I would try to plan ahead of time, and it never worked. It just felt like I couldn't get there, and it was so frustrating. Isn't there just an easy way to get through? And so that question of a straight highway, an easy way to get through, comes to our hearts in this Advent season as we think about John the Baptist's proclamation, uh, inviting us to prepare a highway for our Lord, a highway in our midst, a highway in our souls. And so I want to reflect with you on that highway that is needed, but also the issue of the wilderness. There is voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is letting the people know that he, he is preparing them for the coming of Jesus. He is letting them know they need to get ready. They need to make a way through for the Messiah. And he's using words that came from Isaiah 40, an important prophecy from the time of the Babylonian exile when the people were very eager to be freed from Baghdad and come back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They wanted that smooth way to be able to come back home. When we think about wilderness, do we, what do we think of? When we think about wilderness, do we think about a desert? Maybe. Do we think about a thicket, a very wooded area? Is that the wilderness from which John the Baptist calls? Maybe. When I think about the wilderness now, what comes to my mind and heart are the current political and cultural context these are just really hard days in our country. Things feel like a mess. When I think about the wilderness of our lives, it's not so much for me a sense of being lost as it is a sense of really hard to know whom to trust. There's a lot of leaders that don't feel trustworthy or our news doesn't feel trustworthy. I I try to expose myself to a variety of news sources to hear different perspectives. And one of the things that amazes me is how different news uh, outlets will have totally different understandings of the same event. And I'm not talking about just a little different slant. I think that's natural and healthy in our human life that, you know, conservatives and liberals and different, you know, moderates, all of those will have slightly different angles in which they see current events. But now it seems as though they're just radically different views of what is going on. I think about the recent news around Senate candidate Judge Roy Moore, and on some stations he is an unrepentant pedophile, and on some stations he is an innocent victim of the liberal media. Totally different views of what the story is about that candidate. Or I think about our own president and the debates about his involvement in Russia. And from some outlets, he acted very badly as a candidate and meddled in areas he should not have meddled in in the political life. But if you switch to a different news outlet, give me a break. He, he was a businessman. He was working up in Russia. If you're doing business in Russia, you make contacts with politic, politicians in Russia. What's the big deal? totally different perspectives on the same news stories. It feels dizzying. And for me, at least, it feels like a wilderness of how do I get truth and how do I get accurate information with such radically different perspectives. And then if all those issues of trust in the news weren't enough, then we've had this cascading series of allegations um, 
around sexual harassment and sexual abuse in our culture. I think about how it started with the Harvey Weinstein scandal, and as that began to come out more, this famous Hollywood producer, um, and let me be clear, he's not someone that I, I look at to be a big source <laughs> for me, but I've sure seen a lot of his movies. <laughs> I've sure seen a lot of movies that have the Weinstein Company W logo on them. And we started hearing more and more about decades of practice of uh, expecting young women to uh, be involved with him sexually and that, that whole stereotype about the casting couch becoming quite true, quite accurate in his company and under his leadership. And, and perhaps the most disturbing of all for me around that was the sense that people knew that about him. It was this kind of open secret. Oh yeah, Harvey Weinstein, you know how he is. And in that, maintaining that open secret, his behavior was allowed to continue on and on and on until this became the time in which the allegations came forward and people weren't going to take it anymore. And he has been, he has come down from his place of power. And then we started hearing more and we learned that not only was it younger women being abused in Hollywood and in other places of arts culture, but young men. We started hearing about Kevin Spacey abusing his power when he was the head of the old Vic Theater in London and, and preying upon young men eager to get an acting career in London and Kevin Spacey's abusing them. And then it shifted to the news and Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes and Matt Lauer, really? <laughs> and, you know, Matt Lauer and Garrison Keillor, like the grandpa voice that we've been hearing for how long? <clears throat> for how long? We just, layers and layers of this, and it's so disturbing. And it's disturbing to think of how widespread some of these practices are. It's disturbing to think of how long some of these situations have been going on unchecked. It is a very distressing, you just keep feeling like, who is it going to be next? And then that's not to mention the political struggles with Al Franken and John Conyers and, you know, who else of our political life will be resigning or will come under fire for their sexual impropriety. These are really troubling days. It feels like a wilderness. It feels like, what is going on here? When we think about those dynamics of our contemporary life, we may feel like the Bible may not have much to say to us, and we'd be wrong. It is striking to look back at the time of Jesus' birth and the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' early ministry and discover that that was also a time of great political and cultural unrest and sense of untrustworthiness. During the time of, that we're talking about, that whole region was under Roman occupation and the Romans taxed the peasants very heavily. And so tax collectors became people that were despised because the, the peasants of Israel were taxed very heavily in order to create those Roman roads and the famous Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, 
taxing very heavily their different occupied countries. In addition, the Romans had put into power the family of Herod and Herod's sons, who was not a good man, who did not care about the Jewish people. He'd been brought in from another community. He was a puppet king put in place by Rome. He too had practiced very heavy taxation and used the money collected from the peasant people to build his own fancy, impressive places. So you can go to that area and you can visit Herodian and you can visit Caesarea by the sea and other palaces built to show how grand and important Herod was. While meanwhile, the people were suffering terribly. They had a sense that none of their political leaders were responsive to them or cared about them. And they lived under terrible oppression and they wanted a Messiah to come. It doesn't sound all that different from our day. And so in John's time, in Isaiah's time, in John's time, in our time, we find ourselves crying out, say, God, send us someone, fix this. And John the Baptist reads out, cries out to us again the words of Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for the coming of our God. We yearn for what God is doing in our midst. But then if we keep reading the story of John, this is where we get to the part that's so important. Yes, we live in a wilderness. Yes, there is a strong sense that many people in leadership are not trustworthy. And that's not what John came and said. If you read what John's, John's focus was not all those bad people out there. It was my need for repentance in here. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Gospels all tell us that John was out saying, look at your own lives. And people responded to that. All Jerusalem and the Judean countryside went out to the River Jordan to be baptized by John, to confess their sins, and to, be, to receive forgiveness. In the midst of these troubling times, that doesn't mean that we don't have our own stuff to look at, our own areas from which we need to repent, to confess, to turn around our lives. You have your own versions of what is in your heart as you gather today. And I think about the concept of sin and how one of the ways of thinking about sin is that, that pull toward the wrong or that pull toward evil that isn't what you want to do and yet you find yourself stuck in the midst of it. I was reflecting upon all the premarital counseling sessions I've been through and all the weddings I've done, and almost invariably at the first session, the couple sits down with me and says, we're not going to do that whole crazy wedding thing. We don't want it. We can't afford it. We don't want to deal with it. And they tell us they want something simple and elegant. They just love each other. That's what they want. Just, we're not going to do that. By the second or third or, yes, go Sarvers. <laughs> by the second or third or fourth session, they're going nuts because somehow their idea of a normal sane wedding for many of them has just exploded and suddenly the guest list exploded and the expectations for food exploded and the expectations for the honeymoon exploded and somehow this normal sane event became crazy expensive and family members anxious about it. And how did this happen? Because this wasn't what we wanted. This wasn't what we were going to do, but we find ourselves caught up in situations and we become those people we never thought we were going to be. 
I think about how many parents I witness who love each other so deeply. They, they come together in marriage, their early years, they're connected, they're good friends. And then often after children come, they get so focused on the kids and they lose each other. And they stop from being married to a close friend and partner in life to feeling like they're married to a stranger. And they're sharing a house and they're sharing children, but not a whole lot more. And it's so tragic. When that happens, we need to repent, to say, what, what happened to my marriage? That's, that's not what I wanted here. We think about our desires in parenting, the desire to raise children who uh, are thoughtful and engaged with other people and, and open to life and how sometimes, you know, we find ourselves now in a situation where screens, it, it's as if children are born with screens attached to them. <laughs> you know, very young children just absolutely glued to, to screens, the TV or the video or the games or whatever. And these are not bad things, but they become too much. They become a focal point. And parents wanting to limit their kids' screen time, but after a while you just get so tired. <laughs> you're working and you're exhausted and you're sick of fighting with your kids. And sometimes you can't always maintain those limits you want to maintain as children. And you think, ah, help me, God. I, I want to hold the line on this. I want to parent in a different way. We all have our examples in our souls of our times of moral failure of things that were, we would have said were a big commitment in our lives, but maybe we haven't lived out that commitment fully. Or a pattern that we knew was unhealthy in our marriage or in our ch children's lives or in our friendships that we never quite addressed, and now it's gotten stuck in this healthy way, and we don't know how to address it, but we feel helpless before this situation. We need to repent and the amazing thing about all of this is repentance is wonderful news. Just as in the time of John the baptizer, people gathered from all over because when you went and you confessed and you said, I don't want to do that anymore, and baptized and receiving that sense of forgiveness and freedom, oh, there is possibility. There is new life. These things that seem to hold us in their grip do not have ultimate sway. God does. And it is not too late to break patterns. It is not too late to go back and try something new. It is not too late to apologize and to seek forgiveness. God is working in our world. There is great hope. But that process of getting to where we want to be, to have that smooth way, is a complicated process and a messy one. Which takes me back to that messy way of getting up to, to Wesley Willow's. How in the world did I think the roads were going to be repaired without it being a mess? <laughs> How, if I want good roads, if I want good sewer systems, if I want all of that, it's going to be an inconvenient mess for a while. In our public life, we are struggling in a variety of different ways, and it is an inconvenient mess. But in the midst of these struggles, particularly around sexual harassment and abuse, God is doing a new thing, and behaviors that were tolerated in previous decades are not being tolerated now. It's messy, it's inconvenient, it's painful, but it's God bringing justice in our midst. It is a good thing. And so, yes, we may want to go around it and have something more convenient, but it's still God's work in our world. 
So just as you got to break up some streets for the roads to be paved properly and for the systems beneath the road to be proper, so in the outside world, some things are going to break up and be uncomfortable and inconvenient as we get to the right and just way of how men and women operate together, which is, of course, the vast majority of how men and women do operate together, but to unearth those places where bad patterns had been tolerated and even allowed to thrive, and to look into our own souls our own repentance, to allow this Advent season to be a time to stop and ask God, God, what in me needs to be broken up? What patterns have gotten stuck in bad ways? What are the places where I want to repent and start anew? Because when we offer that to God, when we do repent, we will receive forgiveness in our baptism, in our remembrance of our baptism, and at the communion table. When we come and receive and are forgiven, are filled by God and sent out with a sense of hope and grace. May we trust that God is making a way in the, in the society around us and in our own hearts if we will just let God work. Thanks be to God. Amen.